Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion. Hey, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the One Stop Shop Co-op Shop podcast that was something <laughs> that was that was yeah and today now we're gonna roll with it today we're gonna do sleeping gods distant skies the standalone follow-up to sleeping gods from red raven games and then for our design discussion we're gonna talk about power creep and how fast leveling do we want to have and is leveling too fast good or uh, I'm, I'm just gonna keep talking here until you get one stop co-op shop right one stop co-op shop podcast. And, uh, <laughs> let's see, is this is this going to make it in before? Is this going up this Sunday? Is this the final podcast of the year? Or did that already happen? Nope, it's going to be the final podcast of the year. So we're doing one more, and then our next one in two weeks will be our year end episode, which ironically always happens in January. Just so we talk about the top games that we covered this year, and we rank them from the worst game we covered to the best game we covered, at least on the podcast. Yep. That'll be exciting. But uh, we do want to thank some of our amazing Patreon supporters. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash one stop. You get early access to the YouTube videos and exclusive videos, at least two a month. Well, depending on your pledge level, one or two a month. At this point, uh, if you join, you get 50 plus uh, top 10 lists and playthroughs and interviews and things you can't see anywhere else. So I uh, very much appreciate our supporters. And this month or this week, I'm going to thank Rachel Greenlee, Jonathan Stoller, and Peter Schmaler, Rachel Greenlee, Jonathan Stoller, and Peter Schmaler. Thank you all for your support. And thanks, uh, you know, even if you uh, your financial situation around the end of the year doesn't allow Patreon, you can still subscribe to the YouTube channel, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review. All that stuff helps, but we appreciate all of you. Hey, Mike, I'm pretty excited about something. Oh, go ahead. What is it? I'm pretty excited. We proofed all the files for Flame and Fang. Yes, this thing's good to go, man. Like we're done. Like I mean, we're just waiting at this point on the printer. We are going to run a game found like backer kit or what? Backer kit's a totally different thing. Game found like uh, whatever it's called, where you uh, pledge manager. Pledge pledge manager. Yeah, <laughs> you got that, it. That, you, you made the, it there. The, those are the words we're looking for uh, in January. Basically, while the printer is like while we're waiting in queue to get printed, we're going to run that uh, pledge manager where you know more people can get in if they want to. No, I'm pretty excited. This is the first game of ours that I've been the lead designer on. So, I mean, you know, dragons. So that obviously I had something to do with it. So I'm excited about that. But more excited, more excited just because I feel like our designs get better over time. Like the more we've designed together, the the just the better it goes. And I think this podcast is certainly a huge part of that. No, I agree. And we'll certainly talk more of uh, Flame and Fang, I'm sure, in the year in review episode. But yeah, it's it's been great. I'm, I'm glad that it's going to go forward. And hopefully uh, we, you know, it's always hard to plan these kind of things, but hopefully we get in before the Chinese New Year kind of slows things down for a while. But either way, the game's definitely happening soon, which is awesome. Yep. Super excited. All right. So I've been playing a lot of games. I'm sure you've been playing games too. Although I, I, I feel like this time of year when you're on vacation, you're doing a lot of trips places. Whereas this time of year when like people are off of work, I'm just playing more games. So I have a lot of games, but I'm not going to touch on all of them, obviously. But yeah, I've played a lot of games lately, which kind of surprised me. Yeah, I, I I have a bunch, but they're mostly like solo modes and preview games. I'll just mention a couple quick ones, and then you can kind of go ahead with as many as you want to do. 
Um, I don't think I've talked about this one at all. Almost Innocent is a game I got a review copy of from Asmodee, although I forget who the original publisher is. And this is a cool one. Uh, you got to try this one, Peter. It's another cooperative deduction game. And it's kind of a bit like Paint the Roses in that everyone is involved at the same time. But the actual deduction is a lot more like Clue in that you each have a victim, a killer, a location, a weapon, like that kind of stuff. But it's kind of like on this grid. And basically all the possible items, like the the killers, the weapons, all that are on this grid board. And each turn, it just goes around the table and each uh, a player will give a clue. Like, uh, or actually, well, it's not really a clue. They ask a question of the person next to them because I know your stuff and the person next to me knows my stuff. And the person next to them knows their stuff. So you kind of are each the clue giver for the next person over. Okay. And when you ask a question, it's like, uh, how many of my people are in this row? Or how many of my things are in this column? That's kind of how the questions go. But the cool thing is every player repeats the exact same question to their clue giver. So every clue you name is really a clue for the entire table. So it's neat. There's no downtime. Basically, you're thinking of helping other people solve their stuff at the same time you're solving your own stuff. It's just a good time. So uh, that's one. What was the name of that one again? That's Almost Innocent. Almost Almost Innocent. innocent. (laughs) Deduction is weird for me because some deduction I really get and it really sings and it really clicks. And some like Search for Planet X or whatever it was. Like I just bounced off that hard. Like I couldn't, I couldn't put two things together, let alone the ten things you need to put together. So yeah, I don't I think know. you'll. I think you'll like this one better because it is really at like the same level as Clue. Like the deduction is not as complicated as some of those other games, for better or worse. I think I might make it less attractive to some people, but I think it definitely kind of has its own place and is a lot of fun. Yeah, and I usually like spatial deduction too. That's why it was weird that Planet X bounced so hard for me. That sounds interesting. What else? Again, I've been playing like all these like solo uh, preview games. I, I guess uh, I will follow up on Jekyll and Hyde versus Scotland Yard. I mentioned okay. that in the PAX episode. That's the two player only cooperative trick taker. I was playing with uh, Jeremy Howard from Man vs. Meeple. And I did get a review copy of it. I have a review coming on the channel in the next couple of weeks. But I, my son, my 11 year old, has devoured it. And he likes Sale okay, he likes the crew. Although we both know the crew is better with more than two players. Yeah. But yeah, this one is probably, I would say, my favorite two-player trick taker now. I think that I'm pretty confident saying that. It's just a blast. The kind of, I think I'd mentioned this in the PAX episode, but as suits get broken, that determines which suits beat other suits. So like each suit trumps other suits, basically. It's it's less complicated than that sounds. <laughs> And then the scenario variety is pretty good. Like I'd put it up there with the crew and kind of having you do different things as the game progresses. And even though it is like sort of meant to be played as like one scenario after another, really you can just jump in anywhere you want and play whichever scenario you want for like those special rules. But yeah, I I love this one. Uh, It's been a hit with me and my son. I hope to play with you at some point too, Peter. So yeah, those those are my two. This week. Cause yeah. Planning on getting together this week, by the way, Friday's Mike's birthday. So happy birthday, Mike. And uh, I guess that was in the past, this past Friday, for those of you listening on the podcast. Yes, but tomorrow uh, after this recording. Yeah, no, definitely I'll, I'll teach you this one and Almost Innocent, anything else you want to play. But I think you'll you'll really like uh, Jekyll and Hyde versus Scotland Yard, this two-player trick taker. All right. That sounds good. Yeah, so I've played a lot of stuff, but the number one game that keeps making it back to my table is Nucleum. And I have a, a playthrough and review of it coming up on the channel probably this past week, I would assume, or maybe this next week. I don't know. 
No, the, yeah. the playthrough is going up tomorrow. So by the time this is up, it'll already have happened. And then the reviews, uh, oh, I don't have the review scheduled yet. I will find a way to get the review to be next week. <laughs> I'll move something <laughs> else. <laughs> nice. But uh, long story short, the reason I keep talking about it is because I love this game. It is so good. Solo, I'm not 100% sure about yet. Either I'm doing something wrong or I'm just terrible at the game. Uh, I, I beat players when i've played but i cannot beat the solo ai bot maybe there's something either off about it just a little bit here or there or maybe my skill is just not there or i am focusing on the wrong things you know sometimes why the solo bot is like so different from the base game where you have to like rethink how you're doing things mm-hmm. i don't feel like it's that way it plays a lot like a player the problem is the timing just gets thrown off a little bit like arc nova where like the economy gets thrown off a little bit so yeah, I haven't quite grokked that one yet or whatever. And I've played it quite a few times, but the game itself is amazing. Like gameplay, like if you like economic games the way I do, if you like deck builders, if you like action selection and tough choices, but really simple choices, like there's only five actions in the game and you only can do like three things on your turn. But the amount of decision space is so great, even with just the that little amount of of options so i don't know that one really sings for me been playing 40k with my son i played two or three full games of that uh jerry and i played similo we played uh similo i mean keeps coming back to the table right it's just an amazing little card game for the price i i can't imagine that i'm, I'm so glad it's in my life how about that i was gonna say i can't imagine my <laughs> life without it i don't i don't want to get too hyper, uh, hyperbolic here but uh uh, I am glad that one came into my life. Sea Salt and Pepper tried for the first time and it was fine. Uh, played Fleet again and that was fine. These games are all on Board Game Arena, so easy to get to. Played Carnegie twice with Jerry. And honestly, if Nucleum hadn't come around this year, Carnegie is a really good economic game that I probably would have wanted to get back to the table more and more. We've already played it twice in the last couple of weeks. So that's a really good one also if you like economic games. So maybe if Nucleum isn't quite your speed, Carnegie is very different and a little bit heavier in my mind than what Nucleum is. And then the last one I played just one game of is Kinfire Delve. You know, you compared this to 20 Strong and other of these like little small games. I guess we've had a couple of them this year, including Skyter Hordes. This one hit with me a lot better than at least 20 Strong did. I'd have to play it more. I only played it once to compare it to something like Skyter Horde. But I really enjoyed my first play of it. And that'll probably be our review in four weeks. Although we always say we're going to review something soon. And then we never get to it sometimes because like other things trumpet or jump it or whatever. But I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, no, I really like that one too. I do hope we get to do a episode on it. Yeah. Did you say salt and pepper in the middle of that? Was that a game? It's sea salt and pepper. I've never so even heard of that one. <laughs> you, need, you need to expand on that slightly. <laughs> okay. So it's a little card game. It, I don't know if it's two player only. I'm trying to remember. I'll have to look it up actually now that I think about it because you know me. I played it once and uh, that's the one that didn't. Oh, wait, sea salt and paper. Paper. You're right. I put that <laughs> <laughs> but it is paper. Yeah. I'd rather it be sea salt and pepper. That sounds awesome. <laughs> that is hilarious. Yes. Sea salt and paper. Okay. Yeah. So this is a card drafting game where on your turn, you're basically picking up a card from either one of the two face-up discard piles or drawing two from the deck and discarding one to one of those two face-up discard piles. And you're looking for pairs of things. And if you get a pair, then you can trigger a special ability 
on that pair. So for example, some of the things might let you search through either of the discard piles and find a card. Some of them are like a captain and for every whale you have that goes with the captain. I don't remember if that's exactly the pair, but like you get certain points at the end of the game. And basically you're going to go till you decide to stop. Now you have two choices when you stop. Kind of like if you ever played golf back in the day where you're trying to get like zero points or whatever. Yep. Here you're trying to get more points and you can have those points in your hand or on the table. It doesn't matter. The benefit of playing it to the table is that you get to trigger the special ability or whatever. But if you have them in your hand, of course, those points are hidden. When you think you're winning, you can make one of two choices. You can either say, stop right now. Let's just count up points. Whoever has the most points, you score the points that you have accrued. Or you could say, go ahead and take one more turn. And I think I beat you. And if I did beat you, not only am I going to score the points that I have, but I'm also going to score for like there. Each card has a color. So there'd be whales in like all the different colors or whatever. And so you score points also for the number of blue cards you have or whatever else. In addition, if you give them that one extra turn. But if you don't, you still score points for the color, but you don't score points for the cards you had in your hand or whatever. So, I mean, it's different scoring based on how you do it. But I I think that's the thing that people like. Not only is there kind of cool combos and I mean, it's real quick. It's real simple to play. We learned it and played it literally on the same day and played it two or three times. Really enjoyed that one. It's, you know, it's not going to be, it certainly doesn't have any solo or co-op options to it, but enjoyed it for what it was, which is a quick filler game. Cool. And the the art is like this or actual origami pieces, it looks like, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, I think people actually folded those and those are pictures. So yeah, that, that's what I mean. Sorry, like when I said actual, I meant like real life photos of origami, not like just illustrations. So that's cool. I, as a fan of origami, that's nice. Yeah, Jerry bounced off of it a little, but you know, his um, Jerry doesn't like anything that comes from Japan, right? Isn't that? Yeah, like well anime, <laughs> origami, apparently. <laughs> like sushi. Like, yeah, he, he just, he just. Right, right. That, that's not his country. That's not his people. <laughs> All right. Anyway, let's get to Sleeping Gods, Distant Skies. I'll start with a little bit of a narrative thing. So this is uh, technically in the same world, same universe as the original Sleeping Gods. In that one, you were on a boat that uh, your crew somehow got teleported to like an otherworldly kind of fantasy world and was trying to figure out how to get back home. This one is a similar kind of thing, except this time you are on a plane. So plane versus boat. And (laughs) the basic idea of this world is there's like minotaurs and magical creatures and stuff. There's also people who are from this world. There's also other people who were teleported from the earth that have been here longer. So you'll like meet a mix of people. There are cities and such. But the big thing is in the Sleeping Gods part, is that there are gods, but they are not fully powerful. And right at the beginning, you need to help this one goddess. And if you do that, then she says she can return you to Earth. So that's like kind of the main narrative thrust. But it is, uh, as I'm sure we'll discuss in the review, it is very much an open world game. You're trying to find these totems and power them back up. And if you get enough, then the goddess says she can help you. And that's kind of what you're thrown into. And then you can pick which direction you want to go from there and where you want to explore with it. Yep. And turn structure is very simple. You basically have like five different options on your turn. You can either, and you have a certain amount of time. So each character is going to take a lead turn. You're controlling 
anywhere from one to five characters. There is in a four player game, each character is going to control one character. And then there's a fifth character that's always kind of the narrative lead for the game that is going to be controlled by the first player, no matter who the first player is. And basically you have like six time on your turn and you can do things like move one space. So you're in this map book that is a three by four grid. You can move one space orthogonally for one time. You can also explore. So if you are in a space that has a number on it, that'll relate to a passage in this storybook you can explore for two time and a lot of times that's basically what you're going to be doing you can also if you're in a spot with the plane you can get on the plane and fly it to a, another space but that's basically moving as well you could repair the plane you can uh, take a camp action which basically is a refresh action you heal up a little bit you get your stamina back and you get your action cards back and we'll talk about all those things throughout the course of the review i'm sure so you you basically get your resources back that allow you to do more things again. And that doesn't take any time, but that does take one of your camp actions. And those camp actions are kind of the timer for the game. Because once you get to the end of this camp track, so every time you take a camp action, you cross off on this sheet, you cross off one of the camp icons. And once you've done a certain number of camps, it basically leads you to the end of the game. So not only do you have to get these totems based on this timer, based on this camp timer, and that's basically what you're doing. You're going around exploring, trying to get totems, trying to get resources and gather them to power the totems before time runs out on you. Yep. And uh, for those who have not listened to our reviews before, welcome. We're going to each talk about the five things that stand out to us most about this game's design in a deep or increasing order or importance, I should say. <laughs> Starting with the number five, which is very important still, but the least important of the five points again to our number one. Then along with our final thoughts before going to the design discussion. So uh, I'll jump in with my number five. And for this one, I'm talking about the attrition and recovery system kind of like the timer that Peter just mentioned. So your characters have these three stamina tokens. And as you do skill tests and like kind of explore the world and have hazardous things happen to you, you can have your characters help out and raise your chances of success in, I don't know, climbing a mountain or fighting people and such by taking away these stamina tokens. They also have health that's slowly being worn down. And there's lots of ways to heal and get stamina back, but the most consistent way is to take the rest Peter mentioned that are going to build up and make you end the campaign. And generally, I think this uh, all works pretty well. I think uh, the ability to rest whenever you want to kind of lets you determine the pace of how you're exploring things, the ability to get like your characters back and sort of the resource choice of how far you want to push before you uh, recover is interesting. Now, I will say that and this is going to be something I'll discuss uh, throughout the review. The game does, I think, have a ramping problem. This goes to our design discussion later, where things do get a little bit too easy. It feels like maybe you have too many rests, uh, like more than you might need, because the, the idea of the game, <laughs> and yeah. No Sleeping Gods was, the idea of the game is that you're not supposed to see everything in one playthrough. They have like a lot of unlockable things and achievements and stuff you can do. But I do think that they made it maybe a little too forgiving to rest. And already Ryan Lockett, the designer, has posted an official, uh, like, even harder mode variant that makes resting worse and makes it, like, less likely to heal you and stuff. <laughs> so they are responding to uh, these complaints, which is good. But, yes, generally, I think the resting system is good. I think the uh, choice of, like, resource recovery is interesting. But they, they might not have balanced it quite right. And that's going to be an ongoing uh, complaint I'll bring up for almost all my points, pretty much. Yeah, so I looked. There are 12 rests available to you. 
I have just started the campaign basically, and I've only gone through two rests and I've already unlocked two of the five totems that I need to. So at this pace, and if it gets even easier as the game goes on. Oh, it definitely ramps up, which we'll talk about later. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah. So to get to five totems, I would need five rests. I am at two through 12 and, and don't think that, you know, it's like, Oh, you've only made it through two rests. I played a lot of gameplay. I mean, we're talking five plus hours on those two rests. Like, I don't know. I, I, I do push it to the limit. Sometimes I've gotten pretty low on health and things, but I think they allow you to do that too. And we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that as we go along. Um, but my number five is not that it is the graphic design, which I don't often talk about graphic design, but I really think they do a good job here. All the tokens themselves, because I was worried about special effects and things like, oh, I'm, you know, poisoned. What does that mean? Oh, my morale's down. What does that mean? It Right on the tokens, it tells you exactly what it does. And if you need a more full description, you can go look in the rulebook. On the back of the rulebook, there's a good quick reference guide. But even if you look on the action board, it tells you what those five actions you can do on your turn and how much time they take. The resource tokens themselves not only can be used to, like, power some of your cards, but they can also be used to heal yourself or get some stamina back or whatever else. And it says right on those resource tokens what they do for you. And all the iconography is very, very clear. The cards themselves, you have action cards that you can use to do certain things. It's very clear what the cost is and what the benefit is as well. And again, just after a couple minutes of playing, I don't think I really had to reference the rule book at all because the graphic design, I feel like is so good in this one. So normally I don't call it out, but I think it's such a standout point in this where I feel like even in six months to a year, I could pull the game out and basically, you know, with that understanding the basic concepts of it, look at the board and the graphic design there and understand how the intricacies work. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. I think it's really well done. Didn't make it in my top five, but yes, it, it's a, uh, and, and uh, by the way, they did send us a review copy. Sorry, I meant to say that earlier, but uh, yes, I think this is a great game and great production overall. Uh, so my number four is a pretty darn important one. <laughs> and this was uh, my biggest complaint with the original Sleeping Gods, although I think it's still good to know about, even if you never played that one. And that's uh, kind of the upgrading in the game. So the original Sleeping Gods, just to mention this, because I think it is good for context, you would get uh, tons of adventure card upgrades, which are like these uh, cards you could use for special powers. And you'd have to put these uh, command tokens on them. And you would literally have like 50 or 60 or 70 of them by the end of the game. And they were like on the table because you're putting tokens on them. But then you could clear the tokens off and some of them were way better than others and you didn't have enough tokens. So it was a hassle to uh, manage uh, it was a has. It, it didn't. It wasn't balanced well because you would only use your best items over and over and over again, and never use the other ones because why would you? And you only have a limited number of tokens to put on them, so it wasn't great. And then also in both uh, the original Sleeping Gods and Distant Skies, you would upgrade your characters by attaching these ability cards to them, which would make their skills higher. But in the original Sleeping Gods, every time you went through the event deck, which you did I think three times in a full campaign, you would lose all your upgrades for no thematic reason your characters just got dumb and less skilled all of a sudden so they forgot they yeah forgot they, they, they forgot that's right that's right they, they, they got a, a sudden fantasy amnesia uh so that clearly had issues this one is better uh your characters keep their skills you now have hands of adventure cards and you play them and they go into a discard pile until you rest and you get them all back 
I think all of that is way smoother. It's easier to play for solo. It's cleaner to play for multiplayer. It takes up less table space. You get to use all your cards in a fun way. The negative, <laughs> so this is definitely a mixed one. The negative is that the characters can get overpowered if you level them up a whole bunch and it never goes away. So like, yes, it was totally unthematic and frustrating in the original version, but now it's kind of a little bit too overpowered. And then the adventure cards, you can use all of them every time you rest. So now that's a little bit overpowered because resting kind of is too much. So like, especially, I know you probably didn't get this far, Peter, but I, when I stopped, that was like three quarters of the way through the uh, campaign. And I, again, had like 40 adventure cards. And every time I rested, I could use all of them again. (laughs) And it was a little bit much. So this is another thing that I think Ryan Lockett is working on. That could be house rule. But it's a little unfortunate that in both the original one and in this new version where they like directly tried. Like they heard the criticism. They tried to address it. In some ways, they fix it. I definitely like this system a billion times better just because it's smoother to play. But the balance, again, is not great. And this is maybe the biggest reason for that, even more than the thing that I mentioned earlier. Like just getting like 40, 50 adventure cards back every time you rest means you can go. It really ties in my number five and four point. It means you can go way longer without resting until you could like potentially explore the entire dang map (laughs) and see everything. And there would be no timer at all. So, you know, if you just want to explore and have fun, I don't think it's a problem. And again, it does feel better than the original. I like that your characters get strong. I like that you unlock cool things. Like you feel cool getting more tools. The balance is just not great, though. It is exactly the same issue as role player adventures. And yeah, the the it's I, I don't know what to do about it. <laughs> well, I'm going to talk about part of that, which is the ability cards themselves. So the ability cards are smaller cards that you get, and you only draw two a turn. And they'll they'll serve a couple purposes. Number one is they have icons. So when you're doing any skill challenge in the game, you're going to bring a certain number of icons with you. So when you select characters, they each have to spend a stamina, and each character has three stamina. So that kind of is the driving force between or behind like what makes you rest to some degree, assuming you don't have unlimited resources. But um, <laughs> to because some of the resources let you recover stamina. So, but each character that participates in a challenge is going to have to spend a stamina. But these ability cards will have those icons on them, which you can do one of two things for. Number one is if you fail a challenge, you can discard cards with the icon that of that challenge. And that's anyone, regardless of whether they participated in the challenge or not, can discard cards with those icons on them to help you pass that challenge. The other thing you can do is there'll be a cost for those cards to permanently attach it to your character. So if I want to have more cunning on one of my characters, I can permanently attach a cunning card to them, paying the cost in the upper left-hand corner. It's usually one to four cards. Now, if I already have cunning, I could pay. I have to pay an extra card for each other cunning card I already have. But why would they be different costs? Well, because they also give you special abilities as well. So I thought this was really neat. I loved how it felt like a constant leveling up of your characters. Now, you're only getting two of these cards a turn. Now, if you're playing multiplayer where you're only controlling one character, you have the choice of yourself, or if it's your turn, you can level up Claire as well, who's the main protagonist in the story. But um, but yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed the leveling up. It felt like I was constantly getting better. Um, I did not tend to hold on to those cards. I tended to level them up as soon as I could, unless I had a card with a really cool special ability that maybe I'd want to hold on to till I had enough to pay for like that that better ability 
But for the most part, I was adding and, and leveling up my characters pretty quickly, which felt pretty fun, at least early game. Again, I never got to late game, so I don't know how it would feel late game. But I don't think most people are going to play, you know, let's be honest here. Unless you're somebody who's playing like every game till their maximum conclusion or whatever. I don't think a lot of people are going to get much past where I was, which is probably five to ten hours in. You're getting a good sense of leveling up through those first five to 10 hours. Those ability cards also help you mitigate luck, which I like. And there's a lot of ways to mitigate bad luck in this game because there is some luck as you do challenges. Actually, that's the other thing that's on the ability cards is it has a number in the upper left, which is basically used just to flip from the top of the deck and let you know you know what your modifier for that skill or challenge or whatever else you're doing as well. So there's, these ability cards really have a lot of uses in the game. And I find them one of the cooler parts of the game because it's how you level up for the most part. The adventure cards as well, we'll get to later. But this makes each character feel a little different, whereas they all start with basically the same abilities, just a little bit of differences. This really makes you custom, able to customize your characters throughout the course of the game and make them feel more powerful. So that's number four, the ability cards. Yeah, and I will say, even though, yes, the ramp up is a problem, they do get more expensive as you add more to your characters of the same type, which is often like the best strategy to like put a ton of strength cards on the same character and then just wallop any strength challenge or any strength attack. So they do have ways to mitigate it some. But yes, I, I agree. It's a nice, there's a lot of mitigation for the luck, which is good overall. All right, so my number three is the traveling. This is a open world, go where you want game, like uh, the original Sleeping Gods, like Seventh Continent, like Isafarian Guard, to name a few. And I like it a lot. They Now, <laughs> we'll get to some caveats in a second, but you have an airplane. And man, you know what I love? I love having an airplane. <laughs> because <laughs> this is a game where you'll find out some story hook in one location and the only way to like fulfill that story hook is somewhere else entirely and in all these kind of games it can be grindy heck earthborn rangers peter i know you played that one a little bit uh, i really yep. like that game J jason uh, covered that game it's a great game but that one can be a little grindy when you're like whoops i have to go all the way to the north of the land and i'm all the way in the south i guess i'm gonna hoof it for a few you know hours of gameplay potentially to get up there here you know, as long as you have fuel, you just get on your plane. And hey, if you left your plane behind, if you walked halfway across the map, you can just have your uh, co-pilot guy who stays with the plane fly out to meet you. <laughs> it's great. So, and honestly, I've had him because I, so the level one cards, some of them are like delivery tasks, like take your plane to this location or whatever. So that's what he's been doing. I actually drew three of them early. I actually reshuffled because I felt like I did such a bad job of shuffling because they were all clumped together at the top and they were all like travel tasks. So I had him flying around delivering stuff to other locations and getting me resources. So that was fun. Like I haven't even taken the plane myself yet. I'm just sending it around to different places. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's a great mechanic. It's basically fast travel in a video game ported over to a board game. But the actual travel itself is very smooth and easy here. Like Peter said, you generally have five actions to turn. It only costs one to move adjacent into another space. There's a ton to do on each uh, map board like each uh, board is broken up into tiles or spaces on like this map book and then you can explore different things there so i think the traveling is a breeze it's way easier and smoother than the original sleeping gods to compare it to that it's easier and smoother than something like seventh continent where like you're constantly dying and starving as you <laughs> travel around it's just it's the game makes it very nice to get where you need to go 
Now, the caveat, it might be too nice for some people. Again, like you're resting really easily, you're upgrading really quickly, you can kind of get where you need to go. I've heard people say the game feels smaller than the original Sleeping Gods, and I can see why. I don't think it's actually smaller. I think it's about the same size, not counting the expansion for Sleeping Gods, just the original core content compared to each other. I think it's about the same size, but the fact that you can move through it much quicker and much more easily, I can see making people feel like they're kind of getting too easy, like too much of their handheld. But for me, someone who has kids, has a life, and doesn't want to spend forever like doing nothing, I love that I can get where I need to go, and very little of the game feels like wasted time. So I like the travel system here. I think it's really well done for an open-world adventure game. Yeah, my number three corresponds to that as well, which is the books themselves. So there's a storybook and a map book. And the map book is just, you know, the the... Again, it's three by four grid, but I guess there's two of them next to each other. So two three by four grids. So I I guess it's a six by four grid um, where you're just basically moving around. And not only do you have the plane to fast travel somewhere, but literally almost every space you go to in that grid has a number on it to do an adventure. So honestly, I've just kind of followed a line of adventures as I've moved around and just kind of done these small little story adventures as I go along. Yeah, I mean, the book itself, again, it's a nice, I I like something where I don't have to set anything up. I literally flip, okay, I go off the top of this map, it tells me to go to page 12. I go to page 12, now I'm at the bottom of page 12 because I went off the top of page two or whatever. So I, I like how all that works. It makes it very easy to play, no setup time. But the story themselves, basically, as you're going on these adventures, you know, you see number 56, you turn to book page 56. There's basically three things that happen there. Number one is it's a choose your own adventure where you're like, would you rather handle it this way, this way or this way? And each way you're basically going to do a skill check or you're going to have a combat. And those are the other two things that happen. So it's a choose your own adventure with skill checks and combats. And that's literally like 90% of the game <laughs> is doing skill checks and combat. Skill checks are super simple. You're flipping, you know, you're deciding who goes on them. They have to pay stamina. You're flipping over a card to see what the modifier is. You have plenty of ways to mitigate that to flip either other cards or discard the ability cards from your hand, as we talked about. And then combat, we will get to in more depth later, but combat's a little bit more uh, in depth, but that's basically it. And and like you said, Mike, I feel like people might think the world is small because you're always doing something. I'm never walking five spaces to get somewhere. Typically, normally I'm walking or I'm doing an adventure. I'm walking one space and I'm doing another adventure. And that's like my turn, <laughs> you know, so um, each turn consists of doing one to two adventures. And, you know, the stories are, well, I guess I'll get to the stories in a little bit. Oh, no, I don't. I don't. So I'll, I'll cover the stories I- here, too. All right. Just real quickly, the stories themselves are about the characters themselves. A lot of times in these type games, you get to stories and it's like, oh, I'm learning about all this crap I don't care about, right? In this, there's either some kind of adventure going on or there tends to be some chatter at the beginning and not like Detective where they're just drinking coffee or whatever. There's actual character development in these five characters that are part of your party that they're really talking to you about their insecurities, about the good things that they have, about their their negative personality traits. You're really learning a lot through this story, which isn't necessarily about this world, which is kind of the setting for it. But you're really learning about these five characters, at least in the stories I've gotten to so far. And that part's been really fun. 
Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I'll get to the story in a second. Uh, but first, my number two, something you just mentioned, is combat. So you will often get into these combat scenarios. And basically, this is the same, mostly the same as how it worked in the original Sleeping Gods. But just to explain it for those who didn't play that. Uh, the combat cards, like the enemies themselves, each enemy fight gets a card. They get put next to each other and create basically these adjacent grids of spaces. And some of the spaces will have hearts with different values and you got to do damage to the hearts. When all the hearts are gone from a combat card, it gets discarded. They'll also have like ongoing attacks they do and bonuses they get in things, sometimes special powers and such. And then uh, you as the players get some combat cards as well. And this is like the deck building portion of the game because you start out with a basic combat deck, but as you unlock adventure cards, you get these cooler combat weapons, which I love this part of the growth. I have no complaints about. It's always fun to get new weapons and like do cooler things in combat. Yeah, but you're 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 playing cards and you cover up spaces of these enemies and you can like splash from one enemy into another since their grids are adjacent. And each time you attack, though, you get counterattacked by them and you're trying to defend against that. And that's basically how it goes. You you play some cards, they hit you back. They might resolve some end of turn abilities. You keep going until they're defeated or until you are. Although it is very generous with running away opportunities with retreating, especially for some like the crazy boss fights and stuff. So I like all of that. I think the card play and how they did it compared to the original Sleeping Gods is better. I love the deck building aspect. It is a ton of fun. The concern is, and this doesn't like break it. This is something that's like a little bit annoying, is that they don't attack at the end of their turns, but it's something they used to do in the original Sleeping Gods. They do, some enemies will have these end of turn abilities, but sometimes you can cover them pretty quickly. And then also you can cover up these things that power them up every turn. So I don't know about you, Peter, but almost every combat I went into, I covered all the bad spaces of enemies pretty quickly. And then it was just kind of a a puzzle of like finishing them off. But there wasn't really much of a feeling of urgency. It was just like a question of how much damage can I avoid taking from their counterattacks. So it's kind of better than the original Sleeping Gods. And I think both systems are fun. I think it's a fun combat system. But I have found that the combats tend to be most tense at the beginning and least tense at the end. And I'm not sure if that's the the uh, arc you want in a combat. You know what I mean? That, that's like if you think of a lot of boss battles and things, they go out of their way to like make the boss get stronger as you go so that you end on an exciting note. These combats tend to end on a whimper. But I still think it's a fun system and I love the deck building and the card play. I think all of that is cool. So a bit of a mixed bag here, like a lot of the stuff for the game. But I, I do still enjoy it. Yeah, no, I'll get to combat later, but I agree with most of what you said there. My number two is the adventure and quest cards, and I put them together because they're both numbered sets of cards that you get more of as the game goes on. So as I'm exploring these locations, it might say take out adventure card 27 or whatever, and it might help you with your combat deck or it might help you with these adventure cards in your hand uh, or, you know, the quest cards themselves may say take quest 34 and quest 34 may be a picture of a location and it says go to that location and spend an action to try to get some resources or it might be a story that you get so you're talking to somebody in town they said something's been stolen this is where i think it is so you go to that place and you try to recover those items or whatever else so there might be different quests that way in a lot of ways it felt a lot to me like one of these like new rpgs where you're literally i mean this is probably the most open world game i've ever played 
And I usually say I don't like open world games, but this is one I really enjoyed. I thought they did a good job and just putting it all out there with these quest cards and these adventure cards and the adventure cards help level you up and the quest cards give you new stuff to do. Uh, Sometimes it might be the totems and it says, you know, collect these five resources. How do I collect them? I don't know. I just go around and do stuff and eventually I'll get them and I'll go, oh, all right, I'll unlock this totem now. So It feels like a lot of mini quests to me. And you don't even necessarily have to know what the mini quests are. You know, it might just say, go over to this area. And, you know, there's there's a lot of times a story associated with it. And you can read the card itself and it'll kind of remind you of what the story was. And then you get to kind of find the conclusion. So... I don't know. For me, the system just worked. The com- the the adventure cards are not only, as Mike said, cards that you add to your hand to build up this you know level of power that you can use these cards to heal yourself or do whatever. Now, there's always a cost to them. So not only do you have to discard the card. Well, I shouldn't say always because one of them just heals you for two. But a lot of times it's like discard a meat to heal for three or whatever. So there will be a cost. So you do have to continuously get these resources to power the adventure cards. But they do give you more options as the game goes along. So in that way, it starts very simply and gets more complicated as it goes on. And same with the quest cards. You get like four or five quests to begin with. A lot of times they're just totems and it's like, okay, you need these resources. How do you get them? Doesn't really tell you. But then you talk to somebody and it's like, oh, can you go help me, like I said, recover this stolen item or whatever? And it tells you like the general vicinity of where it's going to be. So I, I don't know. I they, they also, the adventure cards help you with mitigation. So if you fail one of those skill checks, they'll give you a redraw. Or in combat, you're going to roll a combat dice sometimes and it'll let you re-roll that combat dice. So these cards not only give you mitigation, they give you sense of progression. I don't know. For me, again, it's all positive so far. Really enjoyed how these cards come together to give you a sense of progression and also keep your options limited at the same time. So yeah, the adventure and the quest cards. I like how that system works. Yeah, for sure. All right. So my final one is focus on the story and kind of the campaign structure and the replay value. And this is tough to say because I have not quite finished my first campaign. I, I, I didn't uh, finish it up because I wanted to give it to Peter and also had other games to play, but I personally like the story here. And it's interesting because I didn't always vibe with the original Sleeping Gods. It is very much, as Peter literally just said, like kind of side quest the game. And I tend to like a stronger central narrative, but I felt like this one has a stronger central narrative because not to get into spoiler territory, but you have a more direct kind of like good person. You have a more direct antagonist and they kind of show their presence in a specific mechanic over and over again. Again, being vague here on purpose. So I feel like this one, even though it is still very open in what way you go and you can explore in different directions each game, it felt more cohesive than the original for me. And it just worked. I think the writing is well done. I think uh, Ryan and the rest of his team do a nice job with it. I think the uh, choose your own adventure choices are pretty interesting. Like whether you want to take bigger risks or smaller ones. There's certainly like, as you go into locations, there's always something cool to see. There's always something fun to do. And a lot of locations with the core system is these quest cards and the quest cards will give you keywords. 
So like the top, the first of all, the card will remind you, hey, don't forget to go to this freaking place, you idiot, who has no memory, which I very much appreciate. <laughs> but then uh, the top of the quest card will have a keyword like blood. And then when you go to the place, it'll be like, do you have the keyword blood? And I'll be like, yes, I do. And then something special will happen for that quest. So it's been done in other adventure games, but I think it's a smooth system here. I think the story is well done. And the replay, I think, is good. Now, big caveat. Next time I play, I'm going to do some house rules to make the game tougher and sand away some of the edges I've talked about. Or I might use, like I said, Ryan Lockett's new official like veteran difficulty that makes things tougher. Because I think the replay will suffer if you play through the entire thing trying to get to everywhere you can, like not stopping at five totems, which is like the minimum to quote unquote win and going for more. I think then you could explore almost the whole map with resting and adventure card bloat and all the stuff we already talked about. And then I think replay would suffer. But if you like play the amount the game clearly wants you to play about five or six totems each time you play, and then either make the difficulty like fine tune it to be acceptable or just end the game early when you get to that point. I think that's the sweet spot for replay. They do have this fun achievement system where you unlock like really cool bonus cards that you start with. I guess that'll maybe make the, uh, (laughs) the difficulty even less, but at least it feels like, Hey, we know you already beat the game once. Now you can go to the tougher locations fast. So you don't have to like troll around the places you've already done before. So yeah, overall, I think the story is fun. I like the campaign structure. This is, one of it's interesting we're agreeing on this peter i don't always love open world adventure where you can kind of go anywhere i feel like it sometimes lacks like the stakes and direction that i want this one didn't really feel that way for whatever reason i even though it is still very much an open world game i was pretty engaged the whole time i was playing it uh for the week or so that i had with it before i gave it to peter so yeah uh ending on a definitely positive note for me is the story and kind of the campaign structure yeah no and it's kind of like a roguelike in that fashion where you say you can unlock stuff like by by doing certain achievements or whatever and it specifically says you don't have to start with them now what difficulty level did you play on just out of curiosity so i play on normal i definitely next time would play on whatever the hard one is again there's a new like on bgg or on red raven site even harder mode than that but i think the initial hard mode would probably be a good place for me to start and then i might do a house rule about adventure cards to limit how many you get that's about the like main things i was thinking of Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because you and I both like kind of not too hard difficulty a lot of times. And that's the way I felt with this one. I felt like, I mean, even when you lose in the game, it it basically says at the beginning, you lose by all your characters running out of life at the same time. But then it says, if all your characters run out of life at the same time, mark off three campsites, recover your health and stamina and keep going. Yeah. So (laughs) it, it. it kind of feels like a game that's you're, I mean, yes, you could lose if you don't get the five totems or whatever, but it kind of feels like a game where it's like, no, really, we just want you to explore our world and have fun. And with that being said, I'm enjoying normal difficulty level. I'm enjoying going around. The thing I worry about with the non-normal difficulty level is you have to add challenges to the enemies and stuff to make it more difficult. And I don't know that I want that. And that'll kind of roll right into my number one, which is the combat itself. And I agree, Mike, you covered it really well. This is my number one because it's like the standout feature. It's the number one gameplay thing that you're doing. Yeah, the skill tests are fine, but you're not really doing anything except for deciding who goes on it and flipping a card, right? Like, yeah, there's some mitigation there, but you know, you're not making many decisions. Combat was something that at first to me was a really standout positive. But as you've pointed out, 
you know, I think it's going to happen the same way every time. You're going to get rid of those spots that aren't their life first because you don't want them to hurt you between rounds. You don't want them to keep leveling themselves up. You're going to remove those tokens, which make them do more damage each round. And then you're going to slowly wear away at their life, trying not to lose too much life. So I think it's a very cool puzzle. I think it's very fun. I think the first like 10 times you do it, you're going to have so much fun with it. And the bosses work the same way. So they don't overcomplicate things even when you get to boss battles. And it's very simple. Whoever you attack is the only one that counterattacks you. So you don't have to like look at five different cards. You're not worried about initiative, anything else. Basically, you play a combat card on one of your characters. You do what it says. It could be, you know, again, removing their plus attack tokens. It could be dealing damage to them. And it could be uh, defending yourself. And it's going to be some combination of those things typically. And, you know, damage is done by putting damage tokens over these spots on their board. But I do agree with you that I tend to cover up the ones that do things between rounds, that buff them up between rounds. And then you're right. It's the end of combat is the most boring part of combat. You're literally just like, and the other thing, which I don't even know if you knew this or not, but you don't have to use all your characters every round. Like you don't, you know, it says play up to four combat cards. You can play one or two each round and just keep going back to like the least damage characters you have and like making sure you have really good cards and, you know, just, just using the two or three you want and the ones that are no longer as useful. You don't have to use, or sometimes I'll use one that has some defense to it. So I'll block some of it, but it does nothing else for me. Yeah. So that, that part kind of, uh, is the one big negative for me. It used to be the biggest positive, and I think you will enjoy it when you play it because it is kind of a fun puzzle, but it does get repetitive over time. And honestly, I'd rather just do those quick skill checks and get back to the story, which is weird for me. I'm not typically a story person, (laughs) but I'm really enjoying getting back to the story and getting through the stuff. I'm like, oh, I hope I don't have a combat on this one, Um, which is funny because again, it's my number one point because it's the thing you that takes the longest to do, but it is also really fun when you first start, but I think it does wear over time. Yeah, and uh, I will note that, so in the original Sleeping Gods, enemies would attack every turn, like if you left them alive. So it was an entirely different paradigm to the combat because you wanted to kind of kill people quickly. And interestingly, in this new veteran difficulty that Ryan Lockett has released, now the enemies do attack at the end of every turn, but he took away the automatic uh, counterattack when you defeat them, which I'm curious to try because it might be too much. I feel like the game is not balanced for that at all. <laughs> and I can see combat being crazy impossible, especially when you fight a lot of people. But it does seem also like that's kind of the change that, oh gosh, I forgot to say, in the original Sleeping Gods, you would miss Peter. You had to roll dice to hit. Bled of that. <laughs> so I'm very glad that this one is automatic. But yes, I think like with a lot of the other changes, I think they might have gone maybe too far in a different extreme and introduced new problems doing it. But uh, going into my uh, final thoughts on the game. Yeah, I did my final number one, didn't I? <laughs> yep. Going into my final thoughts. So this one, I loved when I did my playthrough. I loved when I did my review. I named it, for those who haven't watched the video, it was my number four, I think, or number five cooperative game of the year. I feel like it's maybe gone down slightly in my estimation since then, just as I've kind of reflected on like where it was going when I stopped playing about three quarters through the campaign and how it's going to get easier. Well, I, I don't want to say that. Like, would it still be my number four? Probably. But I recognize that I'm going to need to either use Ryan Lockett's variant or the hard mode. Probably some mix of the things. 
which is exactly what I'm doing with another kind of game that I said is similar, has similar issues, role player adventures. They've improved the legendary mode for that and the newest printing. It's back compatible with the other things. But like in other things, it kind of introduced some other things I don't like entirely. So I'm sort of, I'm enjoying role player adventures with a mix of house rules and like official harder modes. I think I would do the same thing here. If you want a great open world adventure, if you want to feel very powerful and not too frustrated, if you just want to like get to fun story moments, I think this one is excellent. If you want a tense game with really hard like resource choices to ensure victory or defeat, I think you're going to have to put a little work in to find where the sweet spot is and potentially even house rule things. For some reason, it doesn't bother me as much here because I do still love the core mechanics and just like the story and exploration, which is really the heart of the game, is consistently great and engaging. So the idea that I have to like balance it to not be too easy is a minor thing in the end for me. But certainly looking on BGG and stuff, I see see other people who are like, this game sucks because of that. So it's been a deal breaker for them. It's not for me. I could still easily recommend this. Again, still one of my top games of the year, but it does have its uh, its rough spots if you're not willing to kind of work with it. Yeah, and I totally agree with everything you've said there. I, I, I mean, I haven't gotten as far as you, so the, the difficulty... I, the only reason I noticed is because I've camped so few times and I've already gotten two-fifths of the way through what goals I needed for the game. So I was like, huh, that's interesting. But I've enjoyed everything I've done. And it's the kind of game where similar to Hoplomachus Victorum, I could set up on the table and, and I almost feel like you need a dedicated table for it. I set it up on the table. I play through a couple of turns. I go away. I do something else. And then I come back to it. And it's fun for that. I've got 15 minutes here to do something. Let me go ahead and play a couple of turns of this or play a turn of it in you know, 15 minutes and then, and then move on to the next thing. I really enjoy it for that. So if you're the kind of person that likes the solo games and has the ability to set it up on the side, I haven't really played it much multiplayer. I played a little with my daughter and I enjoyed that as well. But I mean, you're basically just dividing up the characters, dividing up the actions that you're doing. So it didn't feel that much different to me. I could imagine at four players, it'd be an issue because you're only controlling one character and you're only getting one every four turns. So I feel like it's probably best at one or two. People are saying this about another game, too. I can't think of the name of it. It's based on a video game. But it's just like a chill experience. I'm just going around. I'm exploring stuff. I'm enjoying myself. I'm doing skill checks. I'm probably going to pass them. But I'm probably going to use a bunch of resources doing it. And how few resources can I use? And how much time can I go before I need to rest again? Is really where, not necessarily the challenges, but where the, the thought process is. And I'm enjoying all those decisions. So for me... It is the only open world game I've really enjoyed. And I'm not typically a fan of that stuff. So I'm just having fun. And, you know, I was a little mixed on it in my mind at first, but then I just kept wanting to go back and play it more. So, I mean, it's got to be good, right? (laughs) Yeah. And I was the exact same way. I mean, I was very addicted to this one and having a blast. And it's one of the rare games. Like, I don't know if I'll have time for a while, but it's one of the rare games. that's like a big campaign game that when I get it back from you, I still want to play it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I have so little time and a lot of the times I'll like play a game enough to review it and I'm done. This one, I do want to like finish up my first campaign, maybe do another one. I want to play with my kids. So it it is still living in my mind in a fun way. Yeah. My daughter really enjoyed it as well. So, I mean, as many, you know, quote unquote design critiques we have with the game, it's still fun. That's the bottom line. End of the day. It's fun to play. I don't know the price point on this one, but 
it doesn't seem like it would be too hefty just because there's not, you know, yeah, there's quite a bit of components to it, but I, I still feel like it'd be reasonably priced. Yeah, let's, I'm trying to find, because there's a collector's edition. Looks like that's $100. I'm not sure how much the retail edition is. I'm not even sure if it's available yet. Yes, less yeah. than $100 for the yeah, I mean, collector's one. There's a lot of gameplay in there for that price. I mean, now that you're looking at, you know, today's prices, today's market, today's whatever. But yeah, but you just know you're in there for a chill experience. And that's yes. what you have to be looking for. All right. So uh, clearly this was touched on several times in the review, but let's get into our design discussion, which is on power creep and how much leveling up is too much. And this, of course, is going to focus, I would guess, mainly on campaign games, cooperative games. That's kind of our bread and butter a lot of the time. So I would say Sleeping Gods, Distant Skies, Role Player Adventures, those are kind of the extreme in one level. So, Peter, how do you feel when a game lets you get a ton of tools and just get crazy powerful? Like, you know, you're a level 20 D&D character punching God in the face and nobody can stop you. <laughs> Is that a, a positive feeling for you? I, I do like leveling. Um, but I you would like it if the game ended at the point where you become that powerful. You don't want to a quarter of the way in I guess it's timing that, that's important here. You don't want to a quarter way into the game feel like you're god level punching things in the face. You need enough time to feel bad. That way you know when you feel good, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I it does. Although I will say I've certainly seen a lot of adventure games that I think spend too much time in the bad area. Yeah, no, no, no. You don't want that either. Absolutely. Because I remember uh, games like Prophecy, Runebound 2nd Edition, they very quickly got either official or fan variants to skip basically (laughs) the first like five to ten rounds of like almost nothing. And we're just like, ah, whatever. Take a few level ups, take a few gold, take some items. Go at anyway. Those were the boring turns anyway. You know what I mean? Right. I do feel like there's some value to it, though. Again, a turn or two, not not 50 turns, right? I feel like even if you watch a movie, there's that that build up and you're, you know, your character is getting knocked out. You're getting your teeth punched in and then you start feeling better. I think Cthulhu Death May Die does a good job because like as you gain madness, as you're going around, you become more and more powerful. So it's almost like it's almost like a berserker if you think about it that way. Yeah, you need to get punched in the teeth a little bit at the beginning, but that's only going to build your fury and build your power as you're going along. So I do like quick leveling though. Like the one thing, uh, like I'd rather have this where you level up a little too quickly than a game like, and I hate to keep kicking Gloomhaven, but like Gloomhaven where it just, I I don't ever feel like I'm getting better. And even though I eventually see that I've gotten better, like those small incremental upgrades, I don't ever feel them until later on. I'm like, wow, this character is way better than how I started. But I don't notice them as I'm leveling. I want to notice that I'm getting better. And I will say Sleeping Gods Distant Skies, as an example, it does do leveling in the way I want leveling done in that you actually get cool new options that feel different. And I'll give Gloomhaven credit for this too. I, you know, I agree with you that the Gloomhaven leveling, especially like the original, we haven't played Frosthaven enough to really comment on it, though I think it's kind of similar, but like Jaws of a Lion was much faster. But the original Gloomhaven leveling was a little bit slow sometimes. But when you got like a new class card, it felt like a really cool thing. Like it would give you cool powers. You could like jump halfway across the map and do a ton of damage or blast like three enemies at once. 
I, I like that kind of leveling. And I think Sleeping Gods does this too, where like getting new adventure cards, getting new abilities on your characters you can use over and over again, upgrading your combat deck forever, like with cooler cards, like ice swords and stuff. That stuff just feels exciting to me. Whereas slow or fast pacing, anytime leveling is simply like your number is one higher. Oh, and by the way, the enemy's defense number is one higher too. So it might not even matter. (laughs) Yeah, right. Like, so so I do want to give credit where it's due. But yes, I feel like pacing is a really tough thing to do. And and there's different ways to kind of handle it. Here's one of my favorite ways. Let me know what you think about this, Peter. Replacement leveling. This is what we did in Flame and Fang. You're getting better cards, but you're replacing an existing card instead of adding on to it. You know, or like you get a new sword, but you have to get rid of your old sword. So you can't benefit from the bonuses of your old sword anymore. But now you got a new sword, which does a few things a little bit better. I think that's sort of like replacement leveling versus like additive leveling, which is what Sleeping Gods in Skies has. Where it's like, hey, well, I guess the combat has replacement. The regular adventure has additive you know, where it's like, hey, now I have 50 cards instead of 10, and I am five times as strong as I was before, and I can do five times yeah. as many things. Like, I feel like that's a problem. Yeah, the combat deck doesn't do that. The combat deck, you can always keep down to 14 cards, which you typically want to do, and you're replacing the new better cards. You're replacing the older ones. A game that did it terribly, though, is the <laughs> new Descent. Oh, my gosh. I don't know if you remember yeah. that, but you get new weapons which were equivalently powered to the weapons that you currently had. They just work differently. And I guess for some people, they thought that would be exciting. Like, oh, instead of using a hammer, now I can use a crossbow. But I didn't care. Like, the weapons (laughs) didn't feel different enough to me. And even when they did level the weapon itself up a little bit, like, it was so subtle, and it was all handled in the background by the computer or whatever. I didn't even notice it. Again, I want to feel leveling. That's one thing Sleeping Gods does a good job of. I'm in charge of my leveling, and I feel it as the game goes on. And that feels good to me. Now, it's hard to balance that, especially with a longer campaign. The shorter the campaign you do, the the, the easier it is to balance something like that. Because, again, so I think about Marvel Champions. Marvel Champions is this way, and, and same with... Uh, What's the Sentinels of the Multiverse one as well, yeah. right? You start off with nothing at the beginning of the game. You level up and you feel cooler and cooler as the game goes on till you get a point where you beat the enemy. And that's the thing. In those games, they climax with you being your most powerful. Now, you might not win. You may lose even at your most powerful because you don't get to that next level of powerful you needed to be. But you're leveling, leveling, leveling till you get to the point where you can actually break through and then you break through and win. I think that's probably ideal. Now, the thing about those games is they're one-off, one-session games where you're just playing them an hour, right? So if you could drag that out and make it more epic and more adventureful, <laughs> if that's a word, um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, just pace that leveling to the right way. But here's part of the problem. You and I like different things than other people like as well. Some people love that Gloomhaven leveling system. They love playing RPGs every week where they don't level for three, four sessions in a row. And then they level and they feel really cool with that one new card that they might get to use once. I don't know. That's not my thing. But for some people, that is what they like. Well, and you got to give Gloomhaven credit. You don't level up too quickly. And with the level system for the enemies, you can always make sure that the challenge level is about right. 
So they certainly don't have this like kind of power creep. Well, I, I guess you do have the weirdness of when like one character retires and you have like a weaker character joining like a, a stacked <laughs> group of characters not being as useful. But besides that, I think the drip leveling and like slowly unlocking things gives you a lot more fine control over the balance in your game, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, and, and I mean, all right, so we'll talk about the way we do it in spare parts, even though this is a game that hasn't come out yet. This is a game we're working on currently again, where each mission you get to keep some of the stuff that you have from your last mission. Now you have access to all of it. So you can build your robot however you want for each mission, but we're only giving you a certain number of points to level with. So even if you get all this cool stuff, you can't use all of it for every mission. The mission is balanced to be used at a certain number of points or whatever as you go in. So I think that's another way of doing it. Let people level stuff up and then let them choose what they want to use. They're still leveling each mission, but you at least have some control over it. Yeah, and I think that is a fine line to, or fine, like a nice edge to walk because, you know, just to give a few examples. Uh, original Sleeping Gods. You could level up your characters. Whoops, we don't want you to get too powerful. Every time you go through the event deck, all those levels go away. I think that is too much of a blunt hammer to like limit the player options. It, I found when I played it, it actively disincentivized me from leveling my characters up because why do it if it's going to go away anyway? So there's like that line of things. We have what you just said, uh, spare parts where your options increase, but you can't bring them all with you. You know, or games that have like achievements and unlocks. Like, hey, you've unlocked like a new a new outfit, new armor, but you can only bring one of the armors with you. You can't bring all of them. I think that's a pretty smooth And way Gloomhaven to do it. does that too, because you can't bring all of your skill cards with you. You bring nine per mission or whatever, even when you do unlock new ones. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's a nice way to do it. I think that might be... And then even uh, the new role-player adventures, the way they balanced it, because that game had the same problem as Sleeping Gods. You would end up with like a billion cards and everything with trivial. <laughs> but uh, the way they balance it now is that you can have the full collection of cards, but you can only bring like 20 of them with you into the scenario. So 20 still sounds like a lot. <laughs> well, it, it, here's the thing. It's, it's a lot if it's solo. If it's split between three players, it's not a lot. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Yeah, which I yeah. So and, and the same thing with Sleeping Gods, by the way, like when you have a huge adventure card deck, if you and your daughter and your wife have all those cards split between you, it doesn't seem as intimidating when you by yourself get that hand of 50 cards. It's a lot to deal with. But yeah, so I think uh, I think that is a nice way to handle it, to keep a little bit of a uh, control on players. Although at the same time, I know it's frustrating. Spare parts is going to frustrate people. The limits of Gloomhaven can frustrate people. Like, why can't I just bring a billion awesome things in i have them all you know what what thematic uh what thematic fake out have you invented to explain why i can't bring all this stuff <laughs> you know well that's the hard part with adventure games right because if i have a sword of awesomeness plus 20 and a shield of awesomeness plus 30 why can't i bring both of those things like i can carry them clearly right like why wouldn't yeah. i be able to bring them with me with spare parts we could at least because your robots and and mechs, you could come up with a justification. Your your chassis can't handle them, and you know your up you, you know your scientists are working on upgrading your chassis as you go along. But I feel like at least there, it's easier. Whereas in a fantasy universe or in some kind of real world universe or some kind of Indiana Jones universe, like it's hard to justify why I'm losing these things that I've earned and I've gained. Why can I only bring so much? I guess you could do pack space things like that. But you would still then typically just bring your best thing, right? Sure. 
Now, a, a different way of handling kind of the power creep idea. This is uh, related to what we just talked about, but this is what we did in our dragon game, uh, Flame and Fang. It's also in uh, Valor and Villainy. And this is the idea of treating each game session as its own kind of scenario that has a leveling up arc within the scenario, but then you kind of maybe don't go back to square one, but you de-level again. And Flame and Fang, it's a deck builder, and most of the deck building you've done at the end of each mission gets taken away, but you do unlock something each time you uh, play. In Valor and Villainy, literally you get not well actually that's not true. In Valor and Villainy you get like sort of minor upgrades that give you a little bit of a boost each time. But yeah, besides that, every piece of leveling every item you got is gone so i tend to like that on a few fronts number one it does keep the balance very tightly controlled so you're never going to get power creep and like op characters running away with things but also i like quick leveling that's why i'm a fan of deck builders that's why i'm a fan of bag builders like i like to see myself go from zero to hero in a quick fashion and this kind of lets you do that over and over again it's in a way the polar opposite of something like Gloomhaven where I got to play six or seven games before I really feel an appreciable change in my strength level. But again, the frustration, you lose everything. Whoops. And why it's usually not a, a good thematic answer for why it happens. So what do you think, Peter? Yeah. And the game I've been thinking about as you've been talking is a uh, zombicide as well. And one of the things that also bothers me with this power creep and with this leveling system is when one character out levels everybody else. I think they do a good job here with sleeping gods of everybody gets two cards, right? Cause that's the major level up. And when you get these adventure cards, then you split them evenly between the characters. So everybody feels like they're getting something as you go along. Zombie side, I think did a better job as the game went along of getting rid of this, where it used to be one character would get the best weapon. They get all the kills, they get all the levels, but now I feel like they've, they've gone in a way that, as you kill monsters, everybody kind of levels up. It's not just the one character anymore. So, so that's another, I guess, thing to be careful of and cautious of with this power creep. You certainly don't want it so one player is power creeping and everyone else feels stagnant. <laughs> sure. Although uh, it's interesting you mentioned Dombicide because that some games do. Deep Madness did this as well. And that's where it's a quote-unquote campaign game but nothing carries over whatsoever. You know, you can play these scenarios in order or not, but nothing you did in the other one has any effect. Now, at least in Flame and Fang, you get some unlocks. At least in Valor and Villainy, you get some unlocks. You do get a little bit better as things go along and you get like kind of that sense of progress. But yeah, you can just say, screw it. <laughs> Forget any questions of power creep. And it'd be like, nope, it's it's just one session. We just have some narrative connectivity, but no actual uh, mechanics that uh, do anything with it. So I don't tend to like that as much, but also, you know, I love something like, uh, well, Death May Die doesn't pretend to be a campaign game, whereas Zombicide kind of does sometimes. So I I like the Death May Die way of doing it. Just be like, forget it. This is one session. You, you, You beat, you know, an elder god by the end. You're done. But what do you think? Yeah, no, I agree with you because I feel like a lot of times when they're doing that, like Deep Madness style. I didn't even realize they were connected. Even Marvel Champions does this. Like you fight a boss and then the story continues and the next boss continues the next box. It took me until like the third or fourth box, like, you know, each containing five missions each, till somebody pointed out that they were connected. I was like, oh, they are? I didn't even realize the stories were connected, right? So I think that's the fear. 
The cool part is that you could do it in whatever order you want and you could play whatever mission you want and just play it as a one-off, which is really nice. The negative is I do think you lose some of that story when you do it that way because each chapter is meant to be self-contained. So Mm -hmm. I think you're right. Cthulhu Death May Die, I like the way it does it because it doesn't pretend to be connected in any way. It's just all this crazy Cthulhu universe. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Anyway, those were all the types of like kind of ways of doing it I could think of. Uh, Connected and disconnected, bloat and replacement. Any other final thoughts you have, Peter? No, I think the big thing is you're never going to please everybody. And this is something we've been coming back to over and over the last couple of weeks. Figure out what your game is and try to stick to it. Certainly try to make it the difficulty level you want it to be. Don't come up with a problem like Sleeping Gods Distant Skies has because you didn't play test it enough, right? Clearly, they never play tested the last couple of missions. If they did, they would know that it was too easy, right? They know 12 is way too many camps. I feel mm-hmm. like they tested individual parts and they extrapolated, but it didn't really carry over, if that makes sense. So make sure you're play testing enough. If you're doing something like this, don't just play test mission one or two. Play test, test it all the way through to make sure that that curve is going where you think it's going. Yeah, no, I, I actually agree with you there. All right, everybody. So that was uh sleeping gods, distant skies and our final episode of 2023. We'll see you in 2024 for our rundown of our, I think we end up with 19 games covered on the podcast specifically. So we may throw an extra one in there. Sure. Well, maybe if we don't do a Kinfire episode, if we have other games we have to cover instead, maybe we'll like just make Kinfire Delve the number 20, right? We can do that. Sure. Or Sail or Kites or that new Kites or whatever it is. We'll figure it out. <laughs> sure. Lots of we'll... options. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, happy birthday, Mike. Even though it's uh, we're still an hour and 16 minutes away from your birthday. Happy, happy early birthday. And Thanks, uh, and uh, have a happy new year if I don't see you before then. All right, and same to everybody listening. We'll see you in 2024. Bye! Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash one stop or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week for another Top 5 list. Hey, Mike. Yeah. Happy birthday, happy birthday, happy, happy birthday to you. (laughs) Thanks, buddy.